Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, Boris Johnson decided to seek a general election. But will his gamble pay off? Plus, is trophy hunting really as immoral as Carrie Simmons says it is? First, it's only the first week back from summer recess and parliamentarians have already aged by years. The Prime Minister has suffered several defeats in Parliament, first losing control of the order paper to MPs, then losing the Ben Bill in the Commons, and the latest, failing to trigger a general election on Wednesday night. Number 10 will try again, but how risky is this gamble of a snap election? I'm joined by James Forsyth, the pollster Joe Twyman, director of Delta Poll, and Antoinette Sandvach, one of the 21 Tory rebels who became independent MPs this week. So let's start with you, Antoinette. What's this week been like? Sad, really. I feel that the Conservative Party changed this week in a way that I don't recognise. And although I have to say my colleagues have been very kind and supportive. Were you expecting it to go the way it did? Yes, I was told I was going to lose the whip, but I object to that in circumstances where the Prime Minister and a quarter of his cabinet voted against Theresa May's deal and we could have been out on the 29th of March and he was part of the official vote leave campaign with Gove and and others in in the cabinet that made the commitment that the European Communities Act would not be repealed until after Parliament saw the details of the free trade agreement. So my votes this week upheld what vote leave promised. James, what is Boris Johnson up to? Why is he doing this? Because he wants to be in power rather than just in office. His calculation essentially was this, was over the summer they they looked into every way that they could try and block or nullify this extension legislation. At Cabinet on Monday, Jacob Rees-Mogg said, look, I've worked for every option and none of them worked. You know, impeaching the Speaker is a bit arcane, he said, even for me. At which point you are pointing towards a general election. And I think this is the kind of the crucial thing. One of the things that number 10 worried about was fighting a general election, winning it with a slim majority, which is, we can come on to this in a second, but which I think is probably the best possible result for the Tories is a slim majority from a general election. And then being back where they are today because 20 to 30 Tory MPs were sceptical or more than sceptical of Boris Johnson's Brexit strategy. So I think this is really about not stripping the whip from people now, though obviously they've done that, but finding a way to stop people from standing as Tory MPs. I think that is the motivation much more than anything else. And it's an attempt to reshape the Tory party, I think as Antoinette said, so that if he wins a majority of one or two, he can be certain that on Brexit it is a majority of one or two whatever he decides to do, essentially. Now, that, that is a big if, as James says in his cover piece. Joe, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> well, uh, the short answer is it's impossible to know at the moment. The polls as they stand show the Conservatives at around 35%. That's true for Delta poll and indeed for other pollsters. And their lead over the Conservatives is between sort of 10 and 12 points, depending on which you look at it. So they've got a double-digit lead. And in normal times, you would expect that to deliver a majority of between 20 and 30. 
but these are far from normal times and there's a lot of a lot of reasons to be skeptical that that would be the result were an election actually to be held. Firstly, we would have a general election campaign. 2017 showed us just how much a campaign has the potential to change the patterns of voting. Although I think next time around they'd be hard pressed to uh, uh, to run a campaign quite as bad as Theresa May last time. In That's terms, a dangerous in terms prediction, Joe. It is a dangerous prediction, but uh, uh, but it's one I'm willing to stick my <laughs> neck out and, uh, and make. But then also casting a casting shadow over all of this is Brexit and how that plays out in individual constituencies could be hugely important. There are areas of the country, London, Scotland, large metropolitan cities, university towns, for instance, where there are a number of remain-leaning remain conservative constituencies. And if the conservatives can't win those constituencies, then where does the majority come from? Take Scotland, for example. 13 conservative constituencies. If you lose, let's say, 10 constituencies there, that means you have to make up 10 constituencies elsewhere just to stay where you are at the moment, which is a minority. And that then raises really interesting questions about how anyone can win. Because, of course, Labour, particularly with its, shall we say, strategic ambiguity over Brexit, are not looking particularly strong either. So it really, to my mind, as someone that looks at this day in, day out, just leads to a lot of uncertainty. So what's the point, James? I mean, the point is he was stuck. I don't mean they think... But the way it was explained, when you talk to people about this decision to go for an election, no one is certain about what the result is going to be. There's no one is no one is talking with great confidence about you know this isn't like when Theresa May went for the poll in 2017 and everyone was sure that they were going to come back with a massive majority. Their view is that they've got to be able to keep No Deal on the table. But Parliament wasn't going to allow them to do that, and so they're going to have to have this election. But as Joe said, the worry is it's very easy to be certain about where they will lose seats, you know, Scotland, South West London, the commuter belt. But it's much vaguer where they're going to pick them up. And as Joe said, you need to pick up. If you're going to go backwards, they're essentially going backwards to go forward. You've then got to then take a whole swathe of Labour seats. And I think one of the things that 2017 showed is that when a general election is called, people's tribal loyalties kick in. I mean, this is the, they are essentially betting that combination of Brexit... Jeremy Corbyn and kind of ending austerity and basically saying, as they did in the spending review, all the things you care about we'll spend money on will be enough to win over those traditionally Labour voters. But it's still a massive gamble. So let's talk about your seat, Antoinette. Yeah. What, what do you think is going to happen there? What are you going to do? Well, I don't, I, I don't know yet, but my seat... Are you going I, to stand I mean, again? I don't know that don't either. Know. Okay. <laughs> um, so Edisbury was didn't count on constituency boundaries and the research that has been put forward is a guesstimate. So uh, my local council area voted 49.3% remain and 50.7% leave. So I would argue that it's pretty well a 50-50 constituency. I would have asked for a recount at the count if 20,000 votes had made a difference, but it didn't. And I get the feeling that particularly women are very nervous about a no-deal Brexit. I had a, a recent event in a pub, Politics and a Pint, and I had a load of remain, people who'd voted Remain and Leave. And I said to the, the people who'd voted Remain, would you accept a deal if it was a reasonable deal? And they said yes. Would you accept no deal? And they said no. And I think that is the problem for us. And I, I feel particularly sore because 
It was said Parliament would decide what the outcome would be during the Vote Leave campaign. Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, you know, senior figures in the Cabinet laid out that roadmap in Vote Leave. It's all on their website. You can go and look at it. And I, I feel that they indicated to the public that that was the process they would follow and they are not following it. And if the Prime Minister wants to solve the issue and really get a mandate and an answer, have a second referendum. And I have never called for that before. Never. But by proroguing Parliament, what he's done is removed the opportunity to work cross-party with Labour leavers in Labour seats. He's sending them all back to their constituencies. He's not trying to build any cross-party consensus to get a form of May's deal through. And I think he can only get a form of May's deal through. James, tell us a little bit about the election message that we're going to get from the Conservatives. I think the message is going to be essentially vote Boris, get Brexit, vote for anyone else, get Corbyn. Their hope is, so let, let's we talk about kind of Tory Remainers, for want of a better phrase, or Tories who are much more wary about leaving on no deal. Their, their, their hope is that they can keep them on board by essentially saying the choice is backing us on Brexit or Corbyn. So, so the risk of no deal or guaranteed Corbyn. And I think that's how they think they can keep that bit of the Tory electoral coalition together. I think that, you know, there's, there's a kind of odd relationship between the Tories and the Lib Dems in this election, because in some places, the Lib Dems are going to take seats off the Tories, that is inevitable. In other places, the Tories might, the Lib Dems might enable the Tories to take seats off Labour. But I mean, their, their attempt to hold on to those Tory Lib Dem battlegrounds will be an attempt to say, a vote for the Lib Dems, yes, you're voting for Joe Swinson, but you're going to end up with Jeremy Corbyn eventually, because that's the only way they can be Prime Minister. And then try and emphasise all the more, you know, um, air quotes, kind of one nation stuff that the government has been doing since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. But I think that is a squeak. I think it is very, very hard to see how in those southwest London seats, in places like Cheltenham, the Tories hang on against the Lib Dems. I mean, that, that, is, that is a very hard ask. I'm sorry, that's not what my Conservative voters are telling me. They are saying we are going to vote Lib Dem. You know, they, they, I have had emails from conserv- you know, what I call moderate centre-ground conservatives, the kind of one-nation conservatives that you're talking about, who have been emailing me in droves saying they cannot vote for a no deal and that they are going to vote Lib Dem. Joe? To my mind, the Conservative Party is doing its best to present the election in two ways for two different audiences. For these northern heartlands, uh, they're going for the choices, people versus parliament. And so I, as Boris Johnson, are representing the people and delivering Brexit against the elites represented by parliaments who want to frustrate it. Does he poll well as that sort of figure or is he not quite connected to sort of Tory establishment. I mean, he's not, he's, not, he's not a man of the people, is he? Or is he? Uh, well, he, uh, he doesn't poll particularly well in terms of man of the people figures, but he polls better as man of the people than any other politicians that we have. So, uh, so he, uh, he do- definitely does better than Jeremy Corbyn in that respect. And that, of course, is the other element of this for the, for the Tories, whether they be Remainers or Leavers. He's saying the choice is... No deal Brexit with me or a Jeremy Corbyn government. And it strikes me that his hope is that up and down the country, 
in Edsbury where, uh, where Antoinette is talking about those types of conservatives. He is banking, it strikes me, on the fact that once a campaign kicks in, the tribal loyalties that James mentioned will mean that a large enough number of conservatives are willing to reluctantly, even bitterly, hold their nose and vote conservative if it means that Jeremy Corbyn is kept out. To take uh, the example of um, Antoinette's constituency, uh, research that was done earlier in this year showed that uh, when given the choice between choosing to remain, choosing May's deal or choosing no deal, the results were remain 39%, deal 32%, no deal 29%. So firstly, not a large amount of support for no deal, but crucially, not a large support for any of those options. And that's the difficulty that up and down the country's MPs and parties must face. So I have, I'm potentially barred from standing as a Conservative candidate and I have tried to tread that middle line between a deal, between, to juggle. I know my constituency's split and your polling accords exactly with my constituency surveys which show that only 30% of my electorate support no deal. And that um, means that the vast majority of my electorate want a reasonable outcome and a no-deal Brexit for them is not that reasonable outcome. And that is where the Conservative Party is in danger because if you have 45 Lib Dem marginals and and you lose all your seats in Scotland, you know, what kind of Conservative Party are we going to be after an election like that? Which I would argue will be a very divisive election and stir up all the antagonism that we had in the in the in the referendum itself i would argue that boris isn't stuck he needs to work cross party he hasn't learnt from the mistake that may made she didn't go cross party early enough and that prevented her from forcing the more right-wing tories that ideologically want no deal to say, well, the only way we're going to leave is, is if we support. Do, do you accept the, though that the, the prime minister? The, there is, there has been a, a split in the Conservative Party over Europe that's just got worse and worse to the point of stalemate, and something needed to be done beyond what Theresa May and before her David Cameron had done, which was to try to sort of keep both sides on side by not doing very much, or in David Cameron's case, granting the referendum. So I, I agree that there should, well, that's why I argue that May should have gone cross-party much earlier because it would have indicated it, she could have potentially got her deal through if she'd started those negotiations. And there was a critical moment in 2018 when I was voting on amendments around the customs union and the single market that would have provided an opportunity for um, the ERG and other people ideologically wedded to a no deal to say, actually, if we don't support um, checkers, we're going to end up with a far worse way of leaving than, you know, not not as free as mm-hmm. the checkers proposal. And I think that was her te- tactical mistake. And I, I also feel there hasn't been proper leadership to say, we are a divided country, but we have to learn to compromise and come together and understand that we need to have a deal. Now, no deal is is for me, the worst outcome. And I, I you know, I, I was reselected in 2017, telling my association that I couldn't support mm. No Deal. James, what happens to the Conservative Party if it loses this forthcoming election? 
I think it's absolutely devastating. I mean, this is how big the gap is. The end is. of the party. Because I think Boris Johnson is not just betting his own premiership mm-hmm. on this. He is betting Brexit on this. Because I think if the Tories lose this election, I will be... I would, um, you know, not, 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 not to invite, be invited back to do this. But I mean, it, I would be extremely surprised if, if the Tories lose this election, Brexit ever actually happened. So he's losing the greatest achievement of his political career today, which is winning that referendum if he loses this election. And I also think the Tory party would have turned itself into a Leave party and then been in a, unable to deliver on that. And that would raise the whole, what, what's the point of a Tory party? You know? And I think the danger for the Tory party is it would then get kind of eaten all, all, all ways because you would have a kind of people saying, oh, you know, pe- more people going kind of over to the Brexit party saying, oh, they, they failed to deliver. And then you'd have other people saying, oh, what's the point of them? They're, they're, they're incompetent and going to other parties. I mean, that, I think it's, this question has now become existential for the Tory party. They, need, they have to get Brexit done by whatever means, I think, because, I mean, whether that, and I think that I personally think but that could be a deal. I don't, I don't take the view that the only form of Brexit that Brexit voters would recognise is, is no deal. I don't think that's right. I think Boris Johnson will very heavily say that he wants... Now, I, I suspect I think Antoinette will, 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 will take issue with how serious he is about this, but I think he will say repeatedly on the stump that he wants a deal. Because I think, again, I think, I think he personally does want a deal. You could argue about whether he's willing the means, but he does want to deal. And I think also they know in terms of keeping their electoral coalition together. You know, we go back to those constituency numbers. If you add together the deal and no deal numbers, you're in a much better place to fight the election than if you're perceived as being a purely no deal party. Joe? I think the timing of the election, if it takes place, is hugely important here. And whether it takes place before Brexit or after Brexit, places it in a completely different context and I really don't know what the outcome of all of these uh, all of these discussions and debates that are happening at the moment will be but I think that if uh, if the Conservatives uh, have to get an extension for example in order to then hold a general election in November January something like that I think that is hugely damaging for them I think it is much better for Labour which is why I think Labour will presumably do everything they can to achieve that. Thanks, James, Joe and Antoinette. And next, is there another side to the issue of trophy hunting? Celebrities from Joanna Lumley to Ed Sheeran have campaigned against it, with the latest inhabitant of number 10, Carrie Simmons, also giving the issue much more airtime. But while the hunting of African wildlife sounds and looks horrific, Patrick Galbraith argues in this week's issue that the Western campaign against it stinks of white privilege. Who are we, sitting in London, to dictate how African countries should monetise their wildlife? Patrick is the editor of Shooting Times and joins me now, and we're also joined down the line by Dr Mark Jones, Head of Policy at campaign group Born Free. So Patrick, why do you think that trophy hunting is good? It's not that I think trophy hunting is good, but I think that there are a lot of people who are saying that trophy hunting is bad, not based on a lot of evidence. It's become sort of fashionable of late and a bit of a celebrity cause. And I think there was the there was the letter, of course, that was written by Dr. Amy Dickman uh, not long ago now with 133 scientists and conservationists signing it, saying that trophy hunting can be part of a strategy to conserve endangered wildlife and the places that that endangered wildlife uh, lives in. How? 
So if you look at a place like Namibia, for example, where poaching seems to be at a, a five-year low, they've created a sort of mindset there whereby if it pays, it stays. So rather than poachers slaughtering wildlife and monetizing the body parts of those various animals, there are conservancies which are community-owned and uh, international clients often come there and will pay a lot of money to uh, to cull a beast, a trophy beast. And if it's done right, uh, say there's a lion and it's of a certain age, it means that it's no longer contributing to the gene pool in some countries in a positive way and therefore it makes sense for that to be uh, sold as a trophy. Mark some of the statistics in Patrick's piece are quite compelling do you agree with them? Well let me start by saying I think I I, I don't think you can divorce this sort of scientific uh, discussion if you like from the moral and ethical issue here. What we're talking about here is killing for fun and the message that trophy hunting is putting out is that if you're rich enough and that predominantly not exclusively but predominantly involves people from overseas from outside of the country countries where the trophy hunting is actually taking place you can pretty much choose the types of animal that you might want to kill and that goes from everything from animals that are quite abundant to animals uh, like black rhino for example that are classified as critically endangered so you know born free has a, a view that we oppose any type of killing for sport or pleasure on moral and ethical grounds and i don't think that you can separate that entirely from the the sort of scientific or monetary argument if you like but if we try and put those moral and ethical arguments to one side uh, for the moment i think there's always a very big caveat around the discussions with regard to the so-called benefits that trophy hunting might bring to local communities or to wildlife conservation through the money it generates or indeed the argument that trophy hunting provides some kind of service by removing problem or redundant animals and that caveat is always where it's well managed and our experience and we have a lot of experience working uh, for many many years across many parts of Africa with conservation and uh, animal welfare related programs in our experience it's very rarely well managed and the money generated by trophy hunting is very rarely equitably distributed among conservation programs or conservation authorities and local people. Indeed, uh, in many cases, the money disappears out of the country in which the hunting takes place altogether. I also think it's very simplistic to argue that trophy hunting provides some kind of, of service by targeting problem animals or redundant animals. Trophy hunters don't target problem animals. Trophy hunters target animals that make the best trophies. That's why they're paying all their money to get the lions with the darkest manes or you know, the elephants with the longest tusks or whatever. And these animals may be incredibly important animals for the families and the societies in which, in which, they, in which they live. So by taking out those animals, you're not, only you're not only disrupting that animal's life, but also many others. There was a point there, if I could just go back, that you said that, you know, putting morality aside. And I think that's something that Born Free has shown that you're sort of unable to do. I think, uh, you know, your boss, Will Travers, the other day on Radio 4 said that what we really need to do as a country is to turn the tap off on these businesses so that these countries have to find other ways of monetizing their wildlife. You know, and who gets to decide what's moral? I think that it's deeply wrong for someone like Will Travers to say that we need to turn the tap off on Namibia when he doesn't have another tap which he can suggest they turn on. 
Mark, is there also a, a need for you to check your privilege here? Patrick suggests that, that a lot of these campaigns are actually led by uh, white people rather than uh, rather than locals. Um, well, certainly it's not uh, it's not necessarily for us sitting here in an office in the UK to be telling African countries necessarily how to manage their wildlife. That said, as an organisation, Born Free works in a lot of countries, employing local people to conduct conservation work, working with the authorities in those countries, working with local people to, for instance, mitigate human-wildlife conflict problems, working in national parks and in areas around national parks to try and protect the wildlife there. So we don't just sit in an office in the UK. We also do a great deal of work in the field. But, uh, you know, I I don't deny that a a lot of the people that are talking about trophy hunting may well be from countries where, where the trophy hunting isn't necessarily occurring. But what we certainly do have the right to do is to talk about what citizens from our country are involved in and what our country does in terms of what it does and doesn't allow mm. to, to come across its borders. M- moving back to, to Patrick, have you ever been trophy hunting? I haven't been trophy hunting, no. And I have to say that it's something that actually doesn't really appeal to me for a variety of reasons, but I don't think that that really matters. And um, also, do you, um, do you think there's a distinction between endangered species and other species. So have you got some species that you think actually trophy hunting is just wrong because there's so few of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would only agree with trophy hunting if that trophy hunting is done in a sustainable way. I mean, if you look at a country like Namibia, their rhino population is up, their elephant population is up, and that's the same in Botswana. Um, and so they, they are they are being trophy. They hunted. are being trophy hunted. I mean, Joanna Lumley essentially said to British tourists that she didn't think they should go to Botswana, that they should boycott uh, tourism in Botswana if they reintroduced hunting. You know, and I think trying to sort of starve the natives round to your way of thinking is an example of sort of disgusting neo-colonial aggression. But surely there's also the revenue that's generated from safaris, from ecotourism. I think it's really interesting. I mean, ecotourism is only possible in places where there is a framework and the infrastructure for that ecotourism to work. I mean, if you say to a trophy hunter, uh, you know, would you like to go for a three-day trek across some arid landscape to try and hunt something? The answer is often how exciting. If you say to a tourist who only wants to go out for two hours with a camera, what do you think of this? It's going to be an absolute no. You know, they need to go through those places. They need to have the framework to get vehicles in there, uh, which hunting doesn't need. Are you saying that... that Wildlife photographers, and I'm an amateur wildlife photographer, and I do spend four hours just looking for orchids, which are about an inch tall. You're not seriously saying that wildlife photographers are less into spending days hunting for a cheetah or a leopard or something like that, just to take a photo rather than to shoot them? Uh, when you've got wildlife tourism, to make it pay, you need a huge number of wildlife tourists. So it might very well be that you're a sort of intrepid wildlife tourist who wants to go out on a four-day search for an orchid. But to make money out of it, you need a huge number of wildlife tourists, and they don't all want to do that so you can have very low impact hunting whereas you can't have low impact wildlife tourism in the same way. Mark what do you think of that do you think wildlife tourism can be damaging? I think any activity which involves people interacting with wildlife can be damaging if it's not managed properly and so effectively. So should we just stay away but from Botswana Equally, anyway? wildlife tourism, and by that I'm, I presume we're, we're meaning what, what we often call photographic tourism, generates enormous amounts of money and, and wildlife tourism forms a large part of 
general tourism income for many, many countries across Africa and generates, uh, when you look at it across the continent, many, many times the amount of money that trophy hunting does or could ever generate. Now, I agree that there are areas where wildlife tourism, wildlife um, ecotourism, if you like, works and areas where it doesn't work so well. And uh, what we do need to do as organisations that, you know, have the common goal of protecting and conserving and preserving and hopefully recovering some of the very depleted wildlife populations that we're seeing around the world is to find innovative solutions for how we fund uh, protected areas and how we connect protected areas and how we mitigate human-wildlife conflict issues, particularly in and around national parks with increasing human populations. But trophy hunting is never going to do that. There's a video I was watching the other day on a, a channel called One Africa TV, which is outside the University of Namibia, and there's sort of 10, 11 or 12 young people there's 10 or 11, 12 young people out there saying that this is our wildlife and, you know, if we want to sustainably monetize it, that's our choice. Uh, just young students outside the University of Namibia. And I wonder what you would have to say to young people in that country who think that that's the right way ahead and think that, frankly, it's up to their country how they want to monetize their wildlife as opposed to up to Western charities and Western celebrities. OK, just quickly in response to that, please, Mark. Well, as I've already said, to some extent, we don't have the... We can, we can uh, uh, voice our opinions, but we, we don't have... The, the right or the ability to tell to countries in Africa how to, uh, how to manage to their wildlife. You talk about imperialism and you talk about imposing values. Bear in mind that most trophy hunters are Westerners. Trophy hunting is not a traditional African activity. Trophy hunting was imported into Africa by colonial settlers who destroyed much of Africa and parts of Asia's wildlife and have created the situation we're now in. And I'm afraid trophy hunting does not provide uh, a solution to diminishing wildlife populations across Africa. We have to find more innovative and much more compassionate and much more effective solutions uh, which are going to benefit wildlife and people in Africa and beyond. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, why not check out a live recording of Sam Leith's Spectator Books podcast? He'll be interviewing Robert Harris, the best-selling author of Fatherland, Enigma and Pompeii, live in Westminster on the 23rd of October. This event is subscriber only, and to get tickets, just visit spectator.co.uk forward slash Harris. If you aren't a subscriber, well, what are you waiting for? Get a subscription on spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher and you'll get a free £20 Amazon voucher. Do also pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as Rory Stewart's diary from this week, in which he was kicked out of the Conservative Party, and Louise Perry on why she hates the countryside. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 